This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hello, I'm Lale Arakogli, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who is curious about the world and excited to explore places both near and far from home. At this time of year, a lot of us are staring down a busy travel period and likely getting ready to get together with family or friends for the holidays. The prospect very possibly has you wincing. So that's why we've brought in someone who writes about how to be happy and get the most out of every occasion and every season. She's Gretchen Rubin, author of blockbuster books like Better Than Before, The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. I guarantee by the end of this show that if you're a little bit wary about travel or the stresses that it may bring over the coming weeks, you might just find it a little bit easier. Many people write about positive psychology, But Gretchen is special because she's bursting with recommendations about good habits and experiencing the life that works best for your personality. She's preoccupied with helping us be happy. But I had to begin with a big, burning question. I do notice that travel isn't a huge part of what you write about and talk about. Why do you think that is? Why does travel not factor into your approach to daily happiness? Well, you know, that's something I've thought a lot about. One of the things that I realized after I wrote my book, The Happiness Project, is that everyone's happiness project is different. And, you know, I gave myself sort of 12 themes, you know, one for every month of the year. My themes would not be your themes. And I think for many, many people, travel would be a really big theme. And they would think like, well, how can I really bring travel into my life? And how can I make sure that I make time to plan for it and save for it? Whether it's lots of little trips or one big trip, or do I want them to be very adventurous or more luxurious? Or do I want them to be learning or service-based? For me, I'm kind of a homebody. I like to stay home. What is it about staying home that brings you joy? And what do you find in being home that being on the move and traveling, whether it is for work or for pleasure, doesn't give you? Well, you know, my favorite thing to do is read. I basically spend all my time either reading or writing or you know, some version of reading and writing. And reading is something that's really, 
I feel like it's easier to do at home. If I'm traveling, I want to be out and about probably because I want to take advantage of being this new place. Now, my sister, like I have a podcast too, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and my sister's my co-host. My sister's favorite thing to do on vacation is to like sit by the pool and read. I don't find that that relaxing. Like if I'm up in a, if I'm in a new place, I want to be exploring. Reading is something that I really like to do at home. So I feel like that's the place where I can do the activity that I love the most. I take a lot of pleasure in every day in routine. That's probably why I wrote a lot. I write a lot about habits because like the idea of things happening over and over. Some people don't like that. They like a lot of novelty and change, whereas I really find it energizing for things to be the same. And then there's ways you can travel without leaving home. Like you can be a tourist in your own hometown. The notion of opting for a staycation or daycation or any of those cumbrous words isn't a concept we discuss much on this show. But it can be good for the budget or even just as an act of self-care. As Gretchen makes clear in her research, our different personality types determine how we experience leisure, and some people prefer to stay put than travel. She and I are clearly different, but I do agree that her home of New York City, if you have the right mindset, can afford multiple opportunities for lifting the spirits or boosting morale. I could be a tourist in New York City for the rest of my life. Or like I visit the Metropolitan Museum every day that it's open, that I'm in town. And so that's kind of a way to travel in my mind. And yet it's really, I'm staying in my neighborhood. So I think I find ways within the bounds of a routine to give myself the refreshment that a lot of people find through travel. So you said that you live in New York City. So you're yeah. very lucky that you have a oh. massive city where you can be yes. a tourist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's oh, your yeah. advice for people who don't live in arguably the greatest city in the world to discover what's right outside their front door and get to see it in a new light? Do you think that can be applied to where, for the most part, wherever you're living? Yeah, well, I, I do. So I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, which is sort of, you know, Midwestern city and spent a lot of time in New Haven for many years. And so I know what it's like to not live in New York City. Now, and I think, first of all, there's for most of us, there's a lot of stuff that we could do. You know, there's the things that we do when somebody comes from out of town and we're like, oh, we should go visit, like visiting Kansas City. I'd never been to the Truman Presidential Library, which is like a half an hour from the place I grew up. It's like, how have I never been there? It's like a presidential library is a pretty major tourist site, historical site to visit. And we've just never gotten around to doing it. So I think for a lot of us, there are things that we can do. There's a park, there's a historic site, there's that. And then, of course, there's things like you can explore in a different way, which is things like, can you identify the birds? Can you identify the flowers and trees and plants that you see around you? I certainly can't. And now with apps, there's all these apps that you can very easily learn bird identification, plant identification. So there's that. And then just like walking down the street, I mean, people sometimes give themselves projects like taking pictures of all the interesting doors or, you know, really setting off to what are all the parks or what are all the like, what are the best diners? Again, Kansas City barbecue, you could do like a whole thing where you're exploring the city through barbecue or through diners or through ice cream shops or whatever. I think there are ways to find it in your city or your town, just depending on how you think of the idea of... You know, because I guess being a tourist means that you observe, you notice 
how are people lining up for the bus or what's on the shelf at the grocery store, things like that. So I think there are ways to have that tourist mindset without leaving your hometown. You said that you try and go to the Met every day? I do, yes. Talk about that. Why? And what does Uh, it give you every time you visit? uh, It's been fascinating. So I'm writing a book about the five senses. And so I was interested to see... I'm very interested in repetition and and kind of dailiness. And so I thought, I want to go someplace every day and just see how it changes and see how the experience changes with time. Because we all know you go to someplace one time, it's completely different than if you go there a lot of times. And I happen to live within walking distance of the Met. And I thought, wow, if I ever move away from the Met, I'll just feel so much remorse. I'll be like, why didn't I go to the Met more often? I live right there. And of course, I'm incredibly fortunate that I live so close to the Met and that I have the time and the freedom to go. So, you know, never take that for granted. And what I found is like, if I go to Met every day, it's completely transformed my experience of it. I highly recommend this kind of exercise if it at all appeals to you. And it turns out it does appeal to a lot of people. I've now talked to people, many people who do this or want to do this. I thought I was super idiosyncratic. But as often happens, you're not as idiosyncratic as you think. But I just, I understand the museum in a much different way. I see how it changes much more than I thought. I've been surprised. I just inhabit it in a different way. I find it so incredibly refreshing. It feels limitless, but also knowable in this kind of paradoxical way. You know, I, I set out to do it for a year and I think I might get like go every day for the rest of my life. And now it almost seems like, well, why would you go to a museum just once? It almost seems futile. And it's so big. Um, There's I, so much. Yeah. Well, then I went to the Louvre and like the Louvre, my head exploded. I mean, like that is packed and that is huge. The Met is really, really big, but it's not Louvre sized. Yeah. But I mean, if I lived close to the Louvre, I'd go there every day. And I'm sure that would be an amazing experience, too. It's funny, one of my favourite, I like to think, secret shortcuts in London is, because all the museums are free, when you are in central London near the British Museum, I like to cut through the back. And so you just go through the back entrance and rather than walking along the really busy road, you can just cut right through the British Museum. And so you just get like a five-minute slice of the museum and you walk past a couple of incredible things and then you're back out on the street off to wherever you want to go. How fantastic. And so I'm wondering every time you go to the Met, are you diligently going for an hour to two hours or is it sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes three hours? Is it whatever you feel on that given day? And is there a right or wrong way to visit a museum? Because I think sometimes people see it as an obligation or a chore. Back to that idea of like trying to get the maximum you can out of a travel experience. I think sometimes people... They they feel like, well, I, you know, I bought my ticket. I'm in the museum. I have to try to see everything or see as much as I can. And then they exhaust themselves. So one of the things that's really nice is I will go for just 15 minutes just to go and kind of walk through the doors and sort of say, OK, I'm here, but I don't feel any obligation to stay. I have a lot of little quests. So like if I read a novel and they mention something that's in the Met, then I'll go look at it. Or, you know, like, like the retelling of a mythical figure, I'll go look for representations. Or if there's a new exhibit, I'll look at the new exhibit. Or I'll go back to some place that I haven't visited in a long time because I'm like, oh, I kind of forgot about this corner. Like, let, let me remind myself. I do a thing called Met Roulette, which is I bought a huge art book that's a lot of the objects in the Met. And I'll just open it at random, kind of read about it, and then go look for it. And one of the things I test myself is like, can I see an object and walk straight to it? 
Or like there's the garden court, it's the Astor Chinese garden court where it's like actually a little garden on the second floor. Bonkers that there's a garden with like a, a fish pond. I've never been the there. I didn't even know that oh, existed. I've been to the Met oh, numerous times. A, you can so easily miss it. It's just this little tiny thing right in the middle. On Friday and Saturday nights, the Met is open late. So it's kind of fun to go on a Friday night at like 8 p.m. and see all the windows are dark and it's just got a completely different vibe. I let it be whatever I want it to be. I don't have a lot of requirements. A few times I've like listened to music to kind of have a soundtrack. I usually don't. I kind of like not listening to anything. That's part I was of it. I need a lot of silence in my life. So that's something I like. It's not yeah. silent, but I'm not talking and no one's talking to me. So that's almost silence. I was going to ask, do you do the audio guide? 19th century sculpture forms the centerpiece of this room and presides over the assembled artwork. Because I have a sort of aversion to them. You know, I haven't. And I keep thinking that I should try one of these days. I will. Chief curator says it's a sublime example of a style that's been. I agree. I kind of like the wandering, quiet nature of it. And I do feel. But then I know people who swear by it and just say it, it enriches the experience so much. It's now coming into its own and is reflected in the woodcuts on the walls. So, okay, so why don't you like it? That's interesting because I am resisting it. So tell me why you resist it. I think I like being able to wander on my own accord and not yeah. be kind of dictated by a certain prescribed route yeah. I have to take for the audio guide to make sense. And I and think also... And the pace. And I also think, like you said, I kind of want the quietness and to just kind of like be absorbed in my own thoughts. And sometimes like you can stare at something incredible, but also let your mind wander to think about whatever you have to work through from that day. Or, you know, I think it can be, I don't know if it's going to make art historians (laughs) weep, but for me sometimes going, it doesn't have to necessarily be a educational experience yes. it can just yeah. be a place to lose yourself in and you can connect to something and not even understand why and just enjoy that I think you're exactly right like somebody talking to you and you having to process it and look for what they're telling you to look at like there's so much gain to that and so much to learn but then you lose that freewheeling aspect which it sounds like you and I both really value in yeah. a museum I'm going to actually turn to you slightly as my therapist for a second, which Ooh, let's is, do it. you know, you see so much value in staying home and routine. And the nature of my job is that I travel a lot. And mm-hmm. I find that now it's got to a point where if I don't have anything lined up, much like I don't at the moment, I get restless and I get mm-hmm. impatient and I start to worry about the fact that I don't have something in the pipeline. Do I need to move through that? Is that an issue? Help me. I think it's only an issue if you feel like when you stay home, and I'm not, I, I don't know if this is true, but it's sort of like if you felt like, well, I don't know how to fill my time, or it's making me realize that I'm out of touch with my friends, or it's making me realize that my apartment is a big mess, 
So I just as soon be gone because then I don't have to face the fact that I have never hung a picture on the wall. If it's just the sheer love of moving through the world, that's different from feeling like I don't want to be here and think about all the things that being here makes me think about. Like, are you avoiding something? Or are you seeking something? That's a question that I would ask myself. I would argue it's definitely seeking something, but I feel deeply seen Good. about the not hanging pictures on the wall because I have framed things stacked against the wall that have been there for like five years. But we'll move past that and the disorganization of my own home. But yeah, yeah. I think for me, so much of it is about seeking something new. But I also do think that Sometimes you forget to appreciate the like wonders of your day-to-day life. And I have a very fulfilled one. So I guess it's striking that balance, right? Right. And I think there are people where like, it's just like some people with animals. It's like they've got to have animals in their life or they just feel like their life isn't complete. And I think for travel, some people are just like, it's just part of who they are. They, they just have this this desire to get out in this world and this kind of feeling of like, how can I not go see this place for myself? And it really impels them. So just as long as it's not like up in the air, you know, it's George Clooney, where clearly he was staying up in the air because it was too depressing for him to be down on the ground. You just want to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's worth taking a little time to make your apartment more inviting, just so that when you are home, you feel like it's just like a more comfortable launching pad. And, you know, I'm lucky because in Up in the Air, George Clooney was flying around the country to fire people. And I get to, no, that's true. And I get, and to, go, like, I get no. to go to Patagonia. So. No, no, he's the darkest side. Yes, yes, yes. The most sterile, stripped version of it. Yeah. From one corporate hotel to the next. Yeah. From one conference room to the next. On the topic of work travel, my experience is obviously very unique. But you definitely have to, from what I gather, do some travel yeah. for work. Yeah. Do you find joy in that or is there some semblance of reward to it or does it feel like a kind of just a bit of a a work obligation and you're kind of like always ready to get back to New York after the break a few practical and inventive ideas that take the stress out of travel and we discover Gretchen's examples of personality types At the end, I'll find out which type I am, so stick around. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts you really don't want to miss this don't don't miss this don't miss it see you soon (laughs) i'm tanya mosley in 1987 my sister anita vanished without a trace decades later thanks to dna we found her but that's only the beginning of the story She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, 
where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. If Gretchen is averse to reading on holiday, her attitude has at least changed while she's on a plane. A friend of mine gave me a great hack. This was a friend of mine who like worked incredibly hard. She said the only time she would read for pleasure was when she was traveling for work and she would not work while she was traveling. Like she wouldn't pull out her laptop and work during a flight or try to be going through documents while she was sitting in the waiting area. She's like, if I'm traveling for work, I've got a novel out. And I was like, this is a great idea because I was always sort of trying to work, but then not doing it. Like I hate being cramped on an, on a tray on an airplane. And it just, I never felt like doing it, but I always felt guilty. And then this just made me feel like, oh, I'm just going to embrace this. And I always bring paper books because I don't like e-readers and I can only listen to audiobooks if it's like a children's novel that I've read a million times. So I schlep them around. I'm carrying a thousand pounds of books because you can't have just one because what if you don't like it? I know, it? you've you got to have, have minimum two. three. Yeah, I'd have minimum three. And like, that's in your carry-on bag, right? But I'm like, fine. That's how I like to travel. But now I, re- I look forward to that. And every week I post whatever books I've read that week. And it's funny because I'm always like, oh, I must have been traveling that week because the stack is much bigger because I got so much reading done. So that's a little thing that just that transformed work travel because the actual travel part of it just became kind of this treat. Because I do love to read. And now my highest praise is like, is that an airplane book? I mean that like the highest praise. Like, it's so good that nothing could make me happier than to have five uninterrupted hours to just read this book and it will hold my attention the whole time. I mean, that is a high standard. I will save books for weeks and weeks after I bought them or checked them out of the library. Because I'm like, ooh, it's an airplane book. Is there a book you've read recently on the plane that has really stuck with you? I read Stephen King's fairy tale. I mean, Stephen King, you can bring him on an airplane for sure. Oh, I read, uh, oh my gosh, Elizabeth Strout. Elizabeth Strout really good. She, there's just sort of like a fluid nature to her prose that I think really, it's hard to read like dense prose on an airplane, I think, but it's so absorbing. It's so beautiful. And yet it just, it's kind of like, it's very easy to read. And again, I mean, this is the highest praise. I don't mean that this is like fluff or candy. I mean that it has a certain kind of atmosphere that lends itself to that kind of... Because it's also it's uninterrupted reading, so it's very precious time mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that it feels rarer and rarer these days, right? Like to have that... Because I approach yes. flights the same and there's nothing that makes me happier than when the in-flight Wi-Fi doesn't work. And I, huh. I'm like, well, I guess all I can do is read my book. There's nothing else I can do. It's funny that you mentioned Stephen King because I just read... The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson on a plane. Oh, that's a bonkers book. Really recommend it for a flight. Oh, I read yeah. it in one, but basically yes. the length of the flight. It's really a novella. Yeah. yeah. And so absorbing and Page like you Turner. said, bonkers. Bonkers book to read and absorb yourself in. And yet it's very high literary value. And so you don't have that feeling of like, oh, I just ate too much cotton candy. Oh, um, no. You feel like, oh, I really read something. This is like an American classic. You should do like a whole list of like airplane books. Like Graham Greene, End of the Affair, would be a great airplane book. Ooh, I'm going to add that to my list. So Gretchen is a big proponent of stuffing a bunch of novels in your tote bag. And I have to agree. But she doesn't recommend filling your luggage with all sorts of tchotchkes. Rather, she wants you to be more thoughtful with your souvenir shopping. She thinks it will bring you more joy in the long run. 
it's important to find other ways to remember your vacation long after you've gotten home. One tip I have from my book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, where I really focused on this, is there's overbuyers and underbuyers. And overbuyers are people who love to buy. And overbuyers on travel, they can be the people that buy everything in the marketplace. They've loaded up on souvenirs. They've got collections. They fall in love with something. If that's you, you may find that when you come home, that stuff doesn't look as good and interesting. And no, you're not using those placemats that you bought. It's like flowers. They look better growing in the field than they do when you bring them home and jam them in your vase. Maybe there's like a thing that you collect and you only get something for that collection and you try to keep it small and manageable. This is things like that can fit on a bookshelf, not things that, you know, take up a corner of your living room. Or maybe it's something like postcards. It's so fun to buy postcards. They bring back so many memories. So you can kind of scratch that itch of having a souvenir and have something bring back memories for you, but you want to keep them small and highly curated because they are things that when you get them home, they can feel precious because you're like, but we had such a great trip. But you're like, okay, but now you have all this junk to manage. I um, love that. I yeah. am a very light packer and I oh, refuse to check well, a bag, which is go. good because it curbs my souvenir yes. shopping. And I have definitely started to apply the rule of really, I only ever buy like maybe one thing, maybe two when I'm traveling, yeah. even though I'm a sometimes an out of control shopper in my regular life are usually it's ceramics because mm. I feel like wherever you go you can usually find a beautiful ceramic and it feels special and then you can bring it home you can put flowers in it or you know it's it lives on your mantelpiece or something and right. for me it's a nice memory preserver I'm interested to know what you think because when you've got a big trip and you've spent so much time planning it and you spend all your travel savings on doing this thing and it's only a week what are some ways in which you can really preserve the memories for it so that that experience outlasts the actual physicality of the trip? I mean, I'm a big fan of taking photos. And there is sort of the school of thought that if you take a photograph, it's sort of taking you out of an experience. And so you're not as experiencing it as vividly. And so sometimes people are like, well, I'm deliberately not going to take photographs. However, some research does suggest, it's not 100% clear, but it does suggest that at least for some people, it actually deepens their engagement. If you have that impulse, I would not, I, sometimes people are like, don't take a picture, but I'm like, do take a picture. And I think also one thing you can do is if you do take pictures, take it to the next step and like make a photo album, write captions. It's funny, I have like a little shop where I've created products and one is something called the Memento Journal and it's 12 pockets. What a lot of people use it for is travel. Like either they'll have a memento journal for other travel for the year or they'll just have it for however long, forever big trips. And so they'll put in things like menus, ticket stubs, loose postcards or photographs, maybe something from a hotel, pressed flowers, like any kind of flat memorabilia. And then it's all kind of nicely organized and compact because you don't want your mementos and your souvenirs to become so overwhelming that they're hard to manage and that they're kind of diluted. You've got so much stuff, you're like, I don't even remember where I got that ceramic piece. You want each one to like really help you crystallize and evoke those memories. And a photo album is really good for that. So you can use it as kind of like a diary of it where you really write down, well, where were you and what was the day and what was the experience? Here's another great hack for office people that I just used recently. If you need more 
counter space. Because you know, sometimes you're in a hotel and you're like, I need to spread out my work or my papers or like there's no counter space and you need to put all your toiletries out or something. Use the ironing board. If you are in a hotel room that has an ironing board mm. and you can have it be high or low, you can adjust it. You can have it right up against the wall. It can be a standing desk if you want a standing desk. And I had to do this weird Zoom call and I had to have papers next to me. But, you know, I didn't want the bed in the background. So I was like in this contorted position. And I'm like, I'll use the ironing board so I, I can love have my this papers tip next to because, me. Because, you know, in reality, am I ever actually going to iron my clothes in the hotel room? I've never been one for group travel. I just don't think it's easy to totally be in sync with the people that you're travelling with. Our fascination with personality types is nothing new. Medieval philosophers defined four temperaments. There's the Myers-Briggs personality type index. There are so many others. In your work, you have touched on kind of personality types and how happiness can mean a different thing for different personality types or what we do and the way we move around affects our personality type. How does travel affect the different personality types? And do you think that's why travel kind of meshes with some people better than others? I do. I absolutely I do. So one of the big frameworks that I talk about is the four tendencies, which is how people respond to expectations, whether that's outer expectations like a work deadline or inner expectations like wanting to get back into meditation. So whether you meet or resist outer and inner expectations makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger or a rebel. I'll briefly describe them, but if people want to take a quiz and like get a response or like learn more, they can just go to GretchenRubin.com and look for the four tendencies at the top and you'll get the quiz, which three and a half million people have taken for free. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline. They meet the New Year's resolution without much fuss. So they're the people who say, discipline is my freedom. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So if something meets their inner standard, they'll do it no problem. But if they feel like it's arbitrary, unjustified, uncustomized, they'll resist. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. An obliger. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So these are people who are like, I can keep my promises to other people. Why can't I keep my promises to myself? So they need outer accountability even to meet inner expectations. They're like, you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. Typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like they don't sign up for something on Saturday night because they don't know what they were going to want to do Saturday night. Just having it on the calendar will annoy them. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. But this comes up all the time in travel because one of the things you see in rebels is rebels. I would never say always, but rebels tend to love spontaneity. Like they want to go to Paris and then like wake up every morning and figure it out. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this 
inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is why group travel stresses me out so much. And I think, you know, as you're describing the personality types, and I was like, oh, which one am I? And at least in the context of travel, I think I'm leaning the rebel one because, I mean, I love having an itinerary because I think sometimes you do really need one. But Mm -hmm. if it's just on my own time and I'm showing up in a new city, I would much prefer to not know what I'm doing each day. And I also find myself, if I'm on a group trip, digging my heels in as people start to plan. And I'm like, well, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to do my own thing. You sound like a rebel to me. (laughs) That sounds like rebel. And that's exactly the kind of conflict that happens, which it's like, we're all going to do this. And somebody's like, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I think it's like a hangover from school. I like can't shake it. Were you not like that in school too? I was very much like that in school. I hated being told what to do. Yeah, no, I think you sound like a rebel. (laughs) Take the quiz and let me know. I'm going to have to take the Uh, quiz, but I'm interested to know what personality type are you? Well, I'm an upholder, which means I put no value on spontaneity. So you and I and everybody else who's in our party, we make a list of like the five things that we most want to do. One to five. And then we look at them and say, okay, well, what are the things that appear on everybody's list or most people's list? Okay, let's put that on the list. And then everybody should have at least one thing that is on their top five. So let's go through and say, well, is something on your list in the list? Okay, we've done that. How many things are there? And then you just start working through. And that way you're allowing everybody to articulate their preferences in kind of a systematic way instead of waiting for people to speak up because some people are really good at speaking up and some people are not good at speaking up. And then they might feel resentful later or they might feel like they didn't have the vacation that they wanted Mm -hmm. later. And you're like, well, you didn't say anything. And they're like, well, no, but I'm still mad. If you often butt heads with your travel partners, then it's probably even more true when we descend on each other this time of year. Even if you're not part of a family or a clan, the dynamics of even the smallest group going through the process of travelling and visiting each other can result in the tiniest irritation blowing way out of proportion. For the holidays, it's often a time of togetherness. But if it is meant to be kind of vacation time for you, Make sure that you're doing some things that are fun for you. Like if you love to travel, it's like, am I seeing some new things? Maybe everybody else is happy to hang around the house and talk, but I feel like we're in this new city. Like I want to get out and about. Or maybe I'm in an old city and I want to get out and about. Like, can I scratch that itch? Or maybe I need some time to myself to read quietly because there's so many people I feel sort of overstimulated. Can I make time for that? So again, it's about thinking in advance. What do I need? What do I want? And how do I carve that out, given all the other things that are going on, which might be wonderful, but you know, too much of a good thing can sometimes become overwhelming. And that often can happen in the holidays. So I think you know, thinking about what would make it a great holiday time for you and then making sure that you weave that in to the extent that you can. Another thing is like to have a sense of control because sometimes people feel like they're out of control because like maybe they're staying in the home of a family member or friend. So they're a guest and that's weird. 
think ahead about what you want an experience to be like. Like if you're heading into what you think will be a difficult situation, like maybe it's a family dinner where there's like fraught family dynamics, stay in control of yourself by thinking in advance, like, well, how do I want to behave? I can't control other people, but how do I want to behave? And can I anticipate things that are going to make it difficult? Because a lot of times during the holidays, when things make us unhappy, we kind of know in advance that that's likely to happen. Like we've had some experience. Like sometimes something happens completely out of the blue, like your car breaks down. But sometimes you're like, oh yeah, this happens every year. So it's like, okay, if you know you're going to probably argue with this person, maybe you make sure that you sit at the other end of the dining room table. Or if you know that you will tend to give in to too many indulgences, if you're standing right next to the dessert table, maybe you move yourself to the other side of the room. Like you can anticipate the things that might bring you down and then try to, in advance, kind of in the cold reality, before you're in the, like the hot situation, think about how you want to handle it. One thing I like to think about is treat yourself like a toddler. I always treat myself like a toddler. You don't let a toddler get too hungry. You don't let a toddler get too hot or too cold. And you know that if you do not treat that toddler right, you will pay. And I treat myself like a toddler and I make sure even if I'm traveling, like especially if there's like jet lag involved, are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting some exercise? Are you eating enough healthy food, not letting yourself get so so ravenous that then you're just grabbing anything. Thinking about just managing your body as you're moving out of your usual patterns and habits. Well, I will definitely be treating myself like a toddler. I oh, adore good. that approach. As we must. <laughs> yes, yes. We all deserve to be treated like toddlers this Christmas. We do. We do. So I did Gretchen's quiz and turns out my type is... Yes, I guessed it correctly. The Rebel. See you on the first Thursday in January as we're taking two weeks off for the holidays. Dare I say, happy travels? Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. I free you to go to the Met. Oh, yes. Well, it's closed today. <laughs> oh, God, of course it is closed. Are you ever minding your own business when you start to wonder how do killer whales work? Who are Hollywood's paparazzi? Did British sailors get it on in the 1800s with each other? I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week on Getting Curious, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Honey, we explore everything around here with scientists, historians, activists, entertainers, and other brilliant guest experts. You can join me every Wednesday for an all-new topic with an all-new expert on Getting Curious. Listen to Getting Curious wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. 
from PRX.